critical comments and aspects uh, uh, what we didn't achieve probably, uh, and, uh, but also prospects for the future and how we should proceed. Um, and the idea is that each of the panelists will uh, share with us uh, in 10 minutes uh, um, his or her experience on the topic, uh, uh, either uh, having a general approach or focusing on particular dossiers of the digital signal market, which, as you know, uh, includes multiple dossiers, uh, and then we'll have active discussions. Uh, so we... I will go with the alphabetical order that I see here. Um, we have uh, Christian Borg-Green, uh, Vice President and Head of Office of CCIA Europe. Uh, Roland Dole, Vice President, uh, European Affairs uh, from Joite Telecom. Uh, David Martin Ruiz, sen Senior Legal Officer at BEUC, the European Consumer Organization. Uh, Eva Meidel, uh, Member of the European Parliament. And Maximilian Strotman, uh, Communication Advisor at the Cabinet of uh, uh, Commissioner ASIP. Uh, thanks so much, all of you, for being here. Uh, and um, without further ado, let's start with the initial talks. We we'll start, uh, first of all, with Christian. Uh, Eva, unfortunately, has to leave earlier, so uh, uh, probably I will offer um, uh, the floor for questions after her talk because she will not be with us for the discussion. Christian, we'll start with you. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Christian Borker, and I'm head of the European Office of the Computer and Communications Industry Association, and our association represents a variety of uh, tech companies. I'm delighted to be here today. We are a strong supporter of achieving a thriving European digital single market. So this is a theme. I don't be too happy yet. You haven't heard the rest well, of mine. Let me be happy when uh, I but, can. Uh, <laughs> but in, so, so uh, we no. But we are, of course, a great uh, uh, supporters of the ambition, uh, original ambition of achieving a thriving European digital single market. So I'm pleased to be here today. Obviously, President Juncker's political commission has taken a very different approach to the digital economy and to the regulation of the digital economy. We are seeing more politicized legislation, a little bit less based on, on evidence. Uh, I'm speculating that the shock of Brexit, that European leaders simply must show that they are responding quickly to citizens' real or sometimes perceived concerns. There's a certain risk of knee-jerk reactions that we're jumping to regulation to protect citizens or sometimes protect all business models from digital disruption. Obviously, let me be clear, and I hope you can agree here, that there are uh, sometimes uh, clear justification for regulation, and sometimes regulation is needed. Uh, one very good example is the Commission's proposal for the free flow of personal data, of data uh, in the EU. I mean, how can you have a digital single market if you cannot have data flowing freely within it? So obviously, uh, uh, often, uh, legislation and regulation is justified and needed. But the fact is that the tech industry in Europe is now faced with an avalanche of uh, regulation and proposals uh, ranging from copyright, e-privacy, telecoms, audiovisual, law enforcement access to data, consumer issues, platform, digital taxation, etc., etc., etc. That's a lot. So whether appropriate or not, and I think people will have different views on that, the end result is that the tech sector in Europe under this very political Juncker Commission is becoming the most regulated in the world. And my main question here is whether the EU is enacting the right regulation. And if not, what are the unintended consequences? Let me give the first example, and I think it was mentioned briefly in the previous uh, panel, the EU's copyright proposal, trying to update copyright to the digital era. We, who can disagree on that? 
However, there is a requirement that companies will have to actively monitor and filter users' behavior online. And this type of privatized online ship censorship to be a little bit uh, uh, like a white here. Okay, just a little bit. But it, raises, it obviously raises questions about users' rights. What about privacy? What about freedom of, uh, of speech in Europe? So it is uh, very, very uh, complex, but also very expensive for all the startups who are expected to put this in place. So if you want to do a platform in the future, well, you have to put in place these, uh, uh, these filters. It'd be very complex, very complex. Uh, and this, is, this could be a great barrier to entry for European uh, startups. The second example, taxation. Normally, societies, we tax to prevent a certain behavior. Some countries have green taxes on gasoline. Others have health taxes on sugar. Last month, the commission proposed a digital tax. But won't a taxation of digital business models hinder digitalization? Will it encourage EU firms to stay small, to not reach this threshold where they will be taxed 3% on their global turnover? We talked about Spotify, it seems to be the only real European platform, or maybe not a platform, that could be mentioned on the previous panel here. But just before, the month before, the very, very important IPO, this is where they really have to get the IPO to get the investment home, the commission put forward this proposal to tax them on their turnover. A company that I don't think they've ever really earned a profit here, but, and it's not the tax on the profit that will be taxed here, it's not the profit, it is their turnover, 3%. Of course, I would be scared if I was the, not the only platform, but if I was the most prominent European platform, and this happens just before my IPO. I think this is, this is uh, quite something. Another broader and quite curious trend of the so-called digital single market proposals is that many of them will lead to less of a single market. Today, many companies sell from one country, the home country, to the rest of the uh, single market. But many of the digital single market proposals will change this principle from country of origin to countries of destination. Countries of destination, right? So there's a risk that co companies will have to hire an army of lawyers to deal with 27 uh, national regulators, 27 telecoms regulators, audiovisual regulators, competition authorities, data protection authorities, tax authorities, etc., etc. 27 potentially of all of these just to operate in a single market. This change goes fundamentally against the concept of having one digital single market. So what will the impact be on the tech industry in Europe? Well, if we look already at venture capital investments in Europe, if we look at the uh, key tech sectors, like online news, online advertisement, cloud computing, the investments we're seeing in Europe compared to the United States are between 57 and 75% lower uh, in Europe than in the United States. And this is according to data from Professor Lambrecht from the London Business School. If we talk about online platforms, and I'm not going to talk much about it since there was a, a panel just before, Europe is obviously lagging behind North America and Asia Pacific. Europe has created less than half as many platforms as North America or as Asia has. And European platforms employ less than a third than the North American platforms do. And Asian platforms employ many, many more. And finally, uh, European platforms are worth these are, I think, numbers from 2016, but $181 billion, sounds like a lot, but US platforms are worth many, 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 many times more, $3 trillion, this is according to Center for Global Enterprise. I think actually the numbers from the Commission's own numbers are even more sort of worrisome if you think that Europe should be able to produce online platforms. The risk is that the EU's 
politicized regulatory approach to new technologies will lead to fewer European tech successes, that Europe could, or already is, falling behind other regions, and that Europe will continue to miss out on each technological cycle or technological wave, data economy, collaborative economy, 5G, online platforms, et cetera, et cetera. This is very worrisome, uh, and I'm sorry to not be more upbeat. Normally I'm very upbeat, but this is uh, just sort of the starting thing so we, we, we're seeing here. I want to conclude um, by just referring to the previous digital commissioner, Nelly Cruz. And often I notice that the most interesting speeches is actually when uh, politicians are leaving office. Then they can just tell everything, you know. And then the people didn't like, you know. It is much more interesting than sort of when they're midterm, you just have to sort of repeat the same things. So Nelly Cruz, when she was leaving a few years ago, she was leaving her office as commissioner for digital in Europe here. She gave a very honest speech about the fundamental philosophical fight we have in Europe between a Europe that is tech optimistic and a part of Europe that is tech-afraid. And her departing question to her successors, and these are her words, is whether will Europe's leadership class be willing to be excited about innovation and startups, or will it be exhausted by using up its energy safeguarding vested interests? In other words, will Europe's leaders embrace the digitalization uh, transformation, or will it push back against it? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Christian. It was uh, a not so optimistic um, view of uh, the future on the digital single market, but uh, it is good to, to criticize on structures because that uh, uh, creates um, a, a dialogue that uh, could be very helpful, and I'm sure that Ma Maximilian will come back to these points and express his view. Um, uh, we go to the second speaker, uh, uh, Eva Meidel, and would like to hear her views uh, on the digital single market. She is one of the main uh, um, MEPs uh, that follow closely DSM initiatives. So what uh, are your thoughts about DSM and its success? Thank you so much, uh, Jorgos. Uh, thanks for Brugge for having me invited, and I'm very happy to be speaking along uh, such an expert panel today. Well, I have to say that, uh, as you said, I work on the DSM, and I, I try to consider myself, or I think of myself, uh, somebody um, that stays on the side uh, to push forward for uh, embracing digital and technologies across Europe, uh, not just here in Brussels, where, where um, as uh, Christian uh, said, we have a political uh, commission that has very clear and concrete aims, uh, but also along, along member states, because I do believe that as much as efforts are needed here in Brussels, there is a lot to be understood um, in the capitals. Um, so I try to 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 as much as possible, of course, uh, work on, on that part um, as well. Um, I have prepared a few um, points I would like to address uh, when it comes to um, the achievements and what I think we, um, we still need to, to work on. Um, and on the second part, maybe some of the things are related to legislation, but others are also in changing the mindset of consumers, of citizens as a whole, and as policymakers. Um, I tend and try to always, as a positive nature, I try to stand on the positive side of things, and I do believe uh, we have uh, uh, achieved quite a bit uh, so far, and I think the discussion and conversation today is quite uh, timely into kind of setting where we, we want to get up until the end of the mandate of the European Parliament and uh, the Commission. Um, 
I do think it's important that we have proven that added value of action on EU level. Um, and um, uh, unfortunately for me, I have to say, I think there's one success that policymakers are quite happy about, uh, which is uh, looking to one of the next speakers, is the roaming, um, uh, abolishment of roaming. It's quite sad for me. It's a great thing, but it's quite sad that citizens, as well as policymakers, promote this, this of this is one of our biggest successes. I do believe that the EU has many other, much more significant things that we have achieved over the past years. Um, and just focusing on this, I don't think shows actually the added value that the uh, EU has as a, as a whole. Um, but having said this, this is the thing that citizens that mainly interact with us understand because it's closest to them, is there, it's, it's out there in their daily life, uh, and they, they feel, especially for the ones that move a lot across our, our union, uh, they find it a great thing. If we are to ever go to war uh, in Europe and if we don't have PESCO set up, for example, probably citizens uh, will, will feel the need of having a European army. And if we would have one, they would understand the benefits of it. So depending on our time, people tend to appreciate what policymakers are, are doing in a different, so to say, you can weigh things to, in a totally different way. Um, um, which sometimes um, makes it also difficult for policymakers to see where we should put our um, main um, efforts. Um, but uh, on a concrete file, uh, when it comes to portability of online content, um, we do believe that uh, borders uh, were lifted and we breached uh, a number of, 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 of other digital borders. Um, with this, um, with this um, 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 legislation. Um, I do think that another good result for consumers is enabling them to pay uh, which, whichever card they want when they purchase online, a rule that we set up in the geo-blocking uh, regulation. Um, many people uh, say that we could have been more ambitious with this legislation. Again, as much as I have a positive nature, I do believe we should always aim higher and we could have achieved more, but the price perhaps would have been to delay the entire file. So during uh, very dynamic uh, times that we live in a technological revolution, I think it's good that we uh, manage to uh, conclude the package without uh, delay so that the consumers um, are benefiting from the results um, uh, already this year uh, rather than perhaps uh, having a delay of a couple of years. Um, as Christian mentioned, I have also been a strong advocate and a supporter of the opening up of the digital single market for the free flow of data. Um, I have called numerous times for a legislative uh, proposal, and I'm glad to see that we are currently uh, moving uh, into a good solution uh, within uh, the parliament. Uh, and I uh, believe and hope that there will be no skepticism uh, faced by the members states. Um, when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, as you know, it's estimated that an average of around 265 billion uh, euros is lost in Europe due to cybercrime. Uh, so uh, enhanced collaboration among member states and with the industry, I believe, is needed in order for us to define and implement a secure cyber uh, framework. Uh, 
again, we are working on it, and I hope uh, we'll soon have um, uh, have um, more concrete um, texts. Um, I do believe that, in general, we need to grasp more of the opportunities of the digital uh, technology, especially when it comes into helping businesses remain competitive, to enable startups to scale up uh, more swiftly and faster, uh, while in the same time making full use of the cloud computing, of big data solutions, robotics, and high-speed broadband. Uh, and in this way, this would enable uh, companies to create more more new jobs, uh, increase uh, productivity as well as sustainability. Whether uh, there was a good impact on EU industries and consumers, I'm sure in more details the next speakers would, would, would dwell into. Uh, I think we have managed so far to um, have uh, uh, and, and give uh, good opportunities uh, for consumers. Um, they have uh, more choice as well as non-discriminatory uh, pricing. Um, in the same time, we do, I think, still need to work into revising the consumer uh, legislation because uh, adopting certain files such as the GDPR, portability, geo-blocking, I believe it's necessary to go back and look into uh, the consumer legislation, um, which we are supposed to do in the next uh, couple of months in the IMCO committee. Um, then... Um, do we move with the appropriate speed? I do believe the direction is right, but when it comes to speed, I would like to see our institutions being a little bit faster. Uh, generally, revolutions uh, happen because something hasn't been done in time, and we speak about the digital revolution, while in the same time for institutions, it's quite difficult uh, to, to catch up and be uh, we, with, we cannot do it with the same speed, but at least taking 18 months for portability to con be concluded. And of course, we congratulate ourselves, and I think it's a good achievement. And perhaps comparing it to the roaming legislation that I passed, it's a great achievement. But 18 months is still a long time for, for consumers um, and for citizens, especially when sometimes uh, legislating might be and, and adopting it might be too late to the new realities that have happened in the same time. How can we be swifter? Uh, yes, it's already an achievement that 28 member states, uh, various parties in the European Parliament can come together and agree on a text. But perhaps coming from a, a, a different generation um, than the majority of the representatives in the European Parliament, I do believe we can find ways to, to strike the balance and, and strike a deal uh, faster. We need to deliver to citizens because when we don't, then we end up to a certain crisis happening and only then we realize we could have uh, put forward better uh, legislation um, um, forward, which we do in order to avoid another crisis happening, uh, but then something else comes up in a different, in a different sector. Uh, and we've, we had numerous examples uh, lately. 
Um, what should be the priorities for the future? I look forward um, into uh, seeing the um, um, communication on artificial intelligence uh, that is coming, I think, just in a few days uh, from, from today. Um, and for me personally, it's very important that we speed efforts and I congratulate the Commission on all initiatives as well as the different um, non-governmental organizations and business organizations and businesses that do a lot in, for digital literacy because there is so much to be done. We have 44% of Europeans that are digital illiterate. Just imagine uh, what it means for 44% to be illiterate. I believe very soon whether you're illiterate or digital illiterate will make no big difference because especially when it comes to jobs, very often people say, yes, a robot will take my job or something of the kind. Um, I do say that jobs still will be there. They would all be transformed. Uh, but uh, there is one important thing. They will all need digital skills. Uh, and this is not in the long-term future. It's in the nearby future. So speeding our efforts there without um, having a difference between citizens of their age or whether they're young or, or older, uh, how to use technology and, and in what and what it is gives them um, um, in order for them to be able to better uh, manage their data uses or processes that, that they're doing on, on their devices or online in general, I think it's uh, very important. Um, Currently, we have uh, the 44% equals 170 million people. You can imagine just the amount of countries put together um, this, could, this could result in. It is a key thing for us being more competitive. Um, earlier, I spoke about what are the benefits for consumers, but um, the benefits for um, industries are also numerous, but without the skilled and prepared uh, human resources and and people, it will be extremely um, difficult for us to excel. Um, when it comes to digital literacy, I think uh, we also have a stake in the educational process that we will need to change. I do uh, believe that we need innovative education, uh, a, a total transformation of our educational systems. I do understand many of you would say, fine, uh, the parliament is not responsible for that here in Brussels. However, for the first time this year, uh, we hold uh, in Brussels the educational summit. So as you can see, there is a difference also in, in the thinking and, and believing of how we should tackle the skills problem. And um, a lot of efforts are pushed on a European level and unveiled throughout member states uh, in order to trigger this conversation across uh, countries and give good examples of initiatives on which we can all uh, work together uh, and enable our teachers with the right skills in order for them to be prepared to face the already digital literate kids that enter schools. Um, in order to have this society being, of course, more uh, digital literate, I think the public sector has its stake. There are a number of files that, uh, that touch on interoperability in order to help public services and the public se sector um, bodies um, to uh, make sure that 
the EU population is benefiting from advanced e-services today, but I believe there's so much more uh, work to be done. Um, um, there's only 33% of the EU population that's benefiting from e-services, which is way too little. One of the reasons why I say that is because many European citizens do not trust and do not believe the system, so it's a responsibility of the public institutions uh, to um, make sure uh, that we provide trustworthy services as well as all the legislations that we have in place that can protect our data um, that is uh, shared. Um, but yes, overall, I think there is no time uh, for Europe uh, to lose. If we are to uh, continue to be competitive and leaders in certain sectors, uh, we must, uh, with immense speed, not just uh, work on the legislations and adopt them, but make sure that businesses and societies and consumers are prepared uh, for, for um, the digital revolution in order for us to make sure there is no some other revolution coming uh, our way. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Eva. I think it was a very nice um, elaboration of um, uh, some optimistic view and uh, some initiatives at work. You mentioned geoblocking, portability, which were in the core of the DSM agenda as it was defined in 2015. However, uh, you also made, uh, I think, uh, a very valid uh, remark on the speed uh, that we move forward in the DSM, uh, and that is also related to, if you, in your to your late, uh, to your to your final comment that to, there is no time to lose. Um, uh, my question is, um, I, I want to go back to the speed, and I wanted to ask you, you both started uh, your talk by emphasizing that we have a political commission, the same. Uh, it was in the beginning of uh, uh, the talk of Christian. The fact that the commission is a political commission, did it play a role on the speed of how these initiatives move forward and agreed, implemented? It's, it's a good question. I will, I guess, uh, I, I believe so, yeah, actually, I, I think so, because it was very clear from the very beginning what are our aims. It was all lined up clearly, um, and for me, I mean, I always believe that having things that are very clearly presented, and then you also need also the member states on board. We should not forget that. And they're very political, more political than the commission. Um, I think it played a role, but I think the most important thing is, and this is why also having a political commi uh, commission, it just makes sense for the realities we live in. Um, if citizens were expecting things by policymakers to take a long time, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, citizens expect that we find solutions immediately to their problems. And it's just normal. Before, to get the letter sent and to arrive to a different country, it took a couple of days, maybe even longer. Uh, just the speed with the things are moving nowadays, it's faster. And it's absolutely normal that citizens and consumers expect from us swiftness in everything we decide. So it's the right way to approach those um, priorities by the Commission and for policymakers. It's only the right way to, to work on them.
Thank you. Before we move forward, because Eva will have to leave sooner and will not be here for um, the discussion and question from the audience, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you if there is any question right now around DSM, European Parliament initiatives, uh, to Eva right now. Maybe just one comment. Yes. We talked about the free flow of data, and of course, uh, Eva has been a strong supporter of that. But there we saw that the political commission, where you had, I mean, when we talk about a political commission, it means that there's two very important member states who have an early input to this process. That's part of that political commission here. And on the free flow of data, the commission had a proposal, and the commission said, we're going to present this legislative proposal, and you had one member state that said, uh-uh-uh, at least wait until after our election. Something like that happened, right? So a political commission, in this case here, meant that we had to wait at least a much longer, and then you had to have, I think, 16 or 19 heads of government to say, you know, actually, we need this proposal, and the MPs ask for the same. So sometimes political permission can also mean that we are taking it much slower. Uh, this was all a very political process, no? I mean, and it was a very publicly uh, uh, debated uh, political process, so... I don't, oh, yes, you can discuss it, but in the end we got it, we have it here, and there was much uh, political support in the European Parliament, uh, guess uh, colleagues here in the House, and in many member states. Kind of and waiting in suspense. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, Scott. Please identify yourself for the audience. Yes, yes, uh, some of you know me. I'm Scott Marcus, I'm a senior fellow here at Bruegel. Uh, so a, a question following up on that, though. In the first panel, we had a lot of discussion about the need for fact-based analysis and a risk that things might, might move away from fact-based analysis and become too politicized. Uh, clearly, there are some things where the political role is absolutely appropriate. There are other things, for example, the work of DG Comp, where you probably want the bureaucrats to be working bureaucratically with as little interference as possible. How do you strike the right balance? Well, I, I've always been, um, that's why when I sat here, I said it's a very expert panel. And um, I think for us as policymakers, uh, trying to grasp in details certain difficult topics, like, I mean, I would say AI, I don't necessarily understand everything that comes with AI. And I think it's important that we admit that and we are clear to ourselves uh, that we cannot understand everything um, that, that, that it brings with it. So if we can't, we need to be able to not just have fact-based analysis, but be able to discuss, talk, and try to understand as much as possible and learn about um, about AI and, and its, its entire sphere, so to say, with everything that it brings forward when we have to discuss it in the European Parliament um, and meet as, with as many possible um, with experts. Because otherwise you can take a very emotional uh, decision or thinking that AI is just bad because it takes jobs or kills jobs and, and so on. Uh, and I think this is wrong. Um, and I think this is one of the flaws political systems have. So um, we would need to, to, to be uh, much more able to, to understand the topics in depth and not just take, uh, but speaking for the parliament, uh, in this case, in my personal um, actually experience, I see it as a flaw and I think we need uh, much more support on more complex uh, topics. 
Can I quickly come in on this? Because I think Eva, when your question and Eva's answer, I think went for me very much in the right decision. And in this sense, I guess we are too quick sometimes saying, oh, this has become political. Actually, this is the res publica. I think it must be discussed openly, and it must be massively discussed. And the, the less we discuss, the bigger for me the risk is that we, just like Eva is saying, we come to an emotional, quasi-political, probably what you mean with politicized in the end, a decision because we haven't been around, it has not been cooking publicly enough. And the digital world, the digital revolution, what you called it, actually brings to me exactly the tools. Uh, sometimes to the disadvantage, huh? but it is uh, genuinely uh, transparent and open, and it is participative. So it is something that is engaging. And in that sense, the example that you brought with the free flow of data is probably a good example. It's a very technical text in the end, sort of regulating something. No, but it became a public issue. It became a political issue, and it led to a huge debate, and the parliament stood up, and heads of state and, and member states stood up, and we, we got this discussion. So I think this is the positive element uh, in this political debate. I think this is a very interesting discussion, and there are very good points, but uh, we need to move forward to Roland uh, to make his initial talk. And of course, to be fair, you have some additional minutes if you want to comment on this discussion after you present your position on DSM initiatives, prospects. Thank you, Roland. Okay, thank you very much for having me here. Um, you can imagine that uh, the DSM uh, was a very important project also for the telecommunications industry. Uh, but not also for us, for Europe as a whole, because digitization is progressing and uh, to stay competitive and also uh, to allow uh, citizens to participate in digitization in a positive way, I think uh, the Commission uh, was right to have uh, an ambitious plan uh, to how to, to revamp basically the framework conditions in Europe uh, to make this happen. So, uh, uh, as I said, uh, in the DSM strategy in 2015, the Commission set out ambitious goals, uh, especially also for our sector, the telecom sector. Uh, uh, so the idea was to present an overhaul of the current telecoms framework aiming for the creation of incentives for more investment, and we all know what we are speaking about here. Uh, you have seen all the studies that Europe is not doing well in terms of uh, broadband speeds and, and fiber deployment, and, and now the next revolution is on the door, knocking at the door with 5G, basically, where all the regions in the world are already competing, basically, who's the first one? The US, China, Korea, Europe. So who's going first, basically? And being first in these technologies might also determine a little bit what what are the impacts on other technologies which rely on the communications infrastructure. So it, it's, it's a very important area where, where, where we cannot afford to make a, a lot of faults in Europe. Uh, so incentives for investment was key, uh, was a key element of, of this initiative. Uh, and, and one part of this was basically to, to, to get more coordination of spectrum in Europe because we have a huge fragmentation. Uh, why we expect cross-European uh, players to be active in the mobile market. Also, this is a scale market, basically. We need big players to be competitive in the world. This is also a scale business to be efficient and cost-efficient. Uh, still, we have this very fragmented regime of, of spectrum in, in, in Europe. And the industry was a strong supporter of the Commission proposals. We even supported the even more ambitious proposals put forward at the TSM under Commissioner Cruz, which, which basically failed on the resistance of member states to have intervention at all in this area of spectrum allocation and spectrum rules. 
So uh, I, we felt that the Commission came up in, the, in, the, in its proposals for, for the new code uh, with a rather modest approach on spectrum. Uh, that was at least our feeling. And still this modest approach uh, found a lot of resistance uh, um, uh, in, in, by the member states. But surprisingly, we were a bit surprised, but also that in the, in the Parliament support was not as forceful as we expected from the European Parliament in this regard. Um, also, what was important to us was the issue of a level playing field, basically, where we feel that uh, European players need to have a level playing field, which they want to compete on the global market. Uh, and therefore, we, have, we cannot afford to have two different rules here for particular sectors in Europe as compared to the global competitors. So, just to explain the situation of the industry of the last uh, two decades, basically, is, and you've seen the Accenture study published last year, uh, was that uh, this telecoms industry, the European one, has lost 100 million euros per day uh, to digital disruptors in Asia and the US. And then when you compare the figures of earnings of, of telecom operators in the last decade, in 2006, telcos still achieved Europe-wide an EBIT of 63 billion euros. Uh, and this, after 10 years, declined uh, to half of the number uh, of this. Uh, in 2006, European telcos made 33% of worldwide telco EBIT. In 2016, only 9%. Though so it significantly shrinked the volume of this industry. At the same time, politicians expect from this industry to do the 600 billion investment in fiber and 5G in Europe. So it, it's, it's difficult to understand how you can square the circle, basically. Draining all the revenues from this industry, but at the same time expecting a huge uh, generation uh, investment for, for Europe, mainly, mainly done by private sector. So the value loss of European telco shares comes down to investor sentiment as well. The high level of regulation which will remain or even seems to increase further, uh, therefore making investment in fiber and 5G in Europe even less, less attractive. Um, we feel that Europe cannot afford to pursue policies that weaken companies that build the digital infrastructure of the future. And I think the Commission understood this and tried to, to accommodate this with, with, with some, some intelligent proposals. Uh, but now three years after the Commission uh, presented, uh, announced its DSM plans and presented the, the, the code uh, to the Parliament and the Council, um, uh, it looks even much more likely, much less likely, uh, to come uh, to an improvement of the investment condition in Europe. And uh, I, I want to mention three examples here. Uh, the one, as I already mentioned, is spectrum coordination, which was crucial for the rollout of 5G and was watered down in the, watered down in the course of the negotiations. So we expected better governance to ensure harmonization of spectrum policy, which is now more or less missing in the tentative agreement. And we made too little progress in terms of predictability for investors for which we're looking for longer license lifetimes of the sector. Because if you are expected to make an investment where you have a payback period of 15 to 20 years, you need at least to have certainty about the essential ingredient, which is a spectrum you need to amortize your network. It's, it's otherwise, it's not possible. You cannot say, you, we can give you certainty about 10 years or 15 years for spectrum, but you can amortize your investment only in 15 to 20 to 25 years. And the same holds a little bit true for the fiber investment. The problem we have in the current regulatory system is that you do not really have certainty what happens to your investment by national regulators. What you have is uh, every three years, regulators decide, new, make a new decision about the conditions of how you can drive your network business. 
they make a market analysis, and after the market analysis, they have to make new decisions on how the, how the rules uh, are for the sector. And uh, even so, we are moving now from three to five years uh, in the new framework, uh, because the market analysis cycles will move up to five years. It still is not enough to amortize a fiber investment. Fiber investments are difficult to amortize. Depends a little bit also on where you invest in Europe. And here's also some, some, an area where, where, we see, where we are confronted very often with a lot of benchmarks, especially with completely disregard the, the costs involved in different areas of Europe. Whereas, for instance, in Germany, you're, you're, you're 2,000 euros plus per fiber line to the home. Uh, there are some areas in Europe where you can do it for 200 euros, so it's, it's a factor of 10 be between those. Uh, and this also drives a little bit uh, the, the, the amortization uh, you can expect, uh, uh, because price differences with Europe are not factor 10. And if they are factor 10, then politicians come back and say, ah, it's 10 times cheaper there, so you have to be as cheap as they are, even though your costs are 10 times higher, which is completely disregarded at this point in time. So what we are looking for is basically to have a longer predictability for fiber investments. And we want to know what the investment conditions are before we make the investments. And it's also our investors who want to know before we make the investment what the conditions are. And here the commission made some good proposals on the co-investment, basically saying we introduce a different regime. It's not deregulation. It's not regulate your holidays. This is all propaganda, basically, because those who do not want to make progress. It's about a different regime for fiber than for old copper. That's the idea. Because this is all new investment, and if you want to have more new investment, we have to give investment certainty. The idea from the commission was basically say, look, if you go for co-investment, which means basically that everybody who wants to put money on the table can also benefit from this investment, which I feel is fair, uh, uh, then it's, 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 it, it, it's it, basically. All the others who do not want to put money on the table cannot benefit the same way from this investment, which I think is, is rather baseline common, common ground. So what, what we see now, this has been already significantly watered down in Parliament and in, in, in the Council, because there are those who say, ah, we want to continue with regulation as we've done in the past. In particular, national regulators do not want to give up any regulatory competences here. And in the Parliament, there's also a lot of resistance by those who basically fear that they might not benefit the same way as they benefited in the past from access to copper, which, which, which was built under completely different conditions. And finally, as you said, there pop, there's populism coming up again, as we've seen with roaming, basically. We, we can discuss a lot about roaming, but we won't discuss about roaming any longer, even so my personal view is basically roaming one was justified, probably. Roaming two, maybe less. Roaming three, I have a big question whether this was really necessary, but this was something, again, you can give as a present, basically, to your voters, and then it goes through, and it created a lot, it created a lot of distortions in the market, a lot of problems with implementation, and I'm not sure on the real value for, for the consumers of this. Huh? I'm not sure on this. But anyway, this is done in a way. Now it comes back in, 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 with international, intra-EU calls, basically. And here we're in, we have a, in an area which is completely irrational from our point of view, because this is a market which, which is subject to regulation. Roaming was difficult because national regulators could not regulate roaming, basically. It was not a national market. But here, this has always been subject to regulation since 20 years in Europe. Ten years ago, regulators gave up these markets, saying these markets are competitive. These markets are competitive since 10 years. There is competition, there is choice. And still, Parliament comes in and says, ah, another present for our, regular, for our, for our, for our voters. Let, let's, 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 let's abolish completely the surcharges for international courts. And this is completely irrational. It's also not good for Europe, because 
if investors see how Europe does legislation, it does not create certainty. It does not create any confidence in this market if you simply can arbitrarily step in as a legislator and change the rules. Because we still believe in competition, and competition drives investment, competition drives consumer choice. But here, uh, we see that basically, even so, all regulators in Europe, all regulators said this is a competitive market, consumers have choice, and the prices went down significantly, still they're seeing a need to intervene in this market. So this certainly not uh, gives predictability to this market, it certainly doesn't give trust to, to more investment. So, so far to the code. We believe that uh, we, we, we have to, if, if we're still able to turn the wheel back, basically, we see we, at least that we get, have to get it right on, on the investment case. And here we believe that cooperative arrangements, which guarantee that those who are prepared to take risk in a new investment can benefit the same way as those who are doing or handling the investment, if this is guaranteed, and if there are commitments made on this, we need a stability. We need a stability that these rules prevail throughout the amortization period of the investment, at least. And this is still disputed, and I don't understand why, why we are disputing about those things. So far, <clears throat> to the code, there are other important files, and, and uh, we'll only shortly... Okay, I, I will cut it short, basically. Uh, another file where, where we have significant uh, problems with is uh, the e-privacy regulation, uh, which, in fact, uh, we believe that we have a, a very good privacy regulation in Europe already, the General Data Protection Regulation, where we have been very sympathetic and supportive of it. Uh, and what we don't understand why we do, where we need now specific rules uh, for a sector uh, uh, while we have this very, very leading uh, instrument of legislation which, which created harmonization not only across Europe but also across sectors, uh, why we need again a new fragmentation uh, in, in fragmenting rules for, for different sectors. Um, we, could, we can discuss later on this. Uh, I think we have good arguments. Uh, so uh, we believe uh, that if DSM wants to become a success, and, and there are other things as cybersecurity we're very much supportive of because we believe that we know more needs to be done in this field because security is important. It doesn't stop at the border, that, that we feel all. So a better alignment of initiatives is needed from our point of view, uh, uh, but here uh, I think what is crucial from our point of view is that we need to get the code right at this point in time because if we do not have the infrastructure in Europe, discuss, forget all the rest. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Roland. I think it was a voice uh, of concerned sector about how DSM uh, progresses and whether we have the clarity and uh, or regulatory clarity that motivates investment. Uh, Maximilian, you can uh, respond. I'm sure you have uh, some comments to make on that. But before that, uh, we need also uh, to review a consumer's uh, position as it is expressed by uh, it's organ the European organization uh, in, um, in the frame of um, did uh, the cons uh, were consumer benefited by the DSM so far and what are the future perspectives? <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, David Martin, Senior Legal Officer at BEU, the European Consumer Organization. I can tell that we are much happier than my fellow panelists here for a start. And uh, we think that uh, the the Commission was indeed uh, very ambitious with the DSM uh, plan, and this is something which we were very happy about. And if the next Commission is uh, as ambitious as this one, 
would be a good thing in our opinion because the, there are many things at which were not working from a consumer perspective in terms of the digital single market and little by little we're getting the pieces in the puzzle to make it work for consumers as well and uh, I'm going to talk about uh, some of what we think are the achievements and also about the things that are, let's say, let's unfinished business still, because there are many things going on that uh, could still go in the right way or in the wrong way from a consumer perspective. And there, there's a very heated discussions about certain proposals like the e-privacy regulation, like the telecoms code. In terms of the achievements, uh, Mrs. Maidel already mentioned uh, quite of the most of the ones that uh, are high in our list. And uh, roaming, we don't see roaming as a present. We see roaming as a, something which was essential for the digital single market from a consumer perspective. And we're very happy with that. And now, basically, we have to see how it works and monitor that uh, companies are complying with the rules and also monitor that it's not... Um, creating undue effects in terms of prices being um, increased at national level. And one thing that roaming has created is, uh, I would say, irrational situation, to use one of the words that was used before, with regards to international calls. Because from our perspective, it doesn't make any sense that if I'm here in Belgium and I want to call my mom in Spain, Perhaps it might be cheaper for me to go to France and be roaming than to actually make the call from here. And that doesn't make any sense from a consumer perspective. So we think that the international call is, calls is, let's say, the, the other side of the roaming coin, and it's, it's necessary. So that's why we are fully supportive of this initiative. In terms of the other initiatives, portability is indeed one of the biggest achievements as well, because uh, Again, it didn't make any sense that if I went to Spain, I'm Spanish, if you haven't realized by now, and uh, I went to Spain and I wasn't able to watch content uh, that I had legally acquired and paid for, and I was still paying for, imagine, a my TV subscription. I could go to Spain, but I couldn't watch anything there. So thankfully, thanks to the portability uh, regulation, this has uh, changed. Again, we need to monitor how it works in practice, and, um, but we will keep an eye on that. Geo-blocking, another very, very important initiative from our perspective. And uh, true, it could have been more ambitious, notably on the part that relates to copyrighted content and audiovisual, but uh, we have what we have, and it's a really good thing that it's there. So at least it's a, it's a start, and I would say a landmark in terms of online shopping. In terms of the unfinished business, um, the e-privacy regulation, which uh, from our perspective is uh, another key pillar of the digital single market in terms of bringing trust uh, for citizens to use online services together with the GDPR. And here I can say that the concerns are very real, not uh, perceived concerns uh, as we saw a few weeks ago, for example, with regards to the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal and many other things that are every day on the news with regards to privacy online, data breaches, and all sorts of privacy violations that are going on, unfortunately. So that one, we are worried. We are worried because, and here I'm coming to the point about speed, this risks getting stuck in council for a long time. And we are worried about that because we think that it's, it's urgent to have this regulation approved soon. Of course, it needs to be a, a good regulation. doesn't mean that we need to get anything, uh, anything will go. Huh? The, the result uh, still will have to be a quality result. It's not like we want to have it at all costs. 
but uh, it's worrying that the, the pace that this is going and also the direction some of the discussions are taking in council with regards to this regulation. The telecoms code, again, pretty much the uh, same, same thing uh, in terms of where discussions are going. We, we welcome the, the proposal and there are many good things in there, but there are also other things which are taking a, a very worrying direction. For example, in terms of co-investment, we don't share the views that were just uh, expressed. In terms of the consumer uh, part, uh, it's very important that uh, all electronic communication services are included, in, including digital television. It's important that ODDs are covered, uh, duly covered as well. So it's, uh, there's a risk that we will end up in with a result that is a bit of a mishmash between different things and uh, that's, uh, that's worrying from our perspective. So we, we hope that in the end it won't be like that and we're working very hard uh, from that point of view. Cybersecurity is another very important point for consumers. In the Internet of Things, we've had uh, some of our members doing research recently. You might have heard of my friend Kayla. It's a famous connected doll that was basically spying on your children and selling all the, sending all the conversations that children had with the doll to companies in the US uh, which had uh, agreements with the Pentagon, for example, with the US Defense, or sending the data to, to China and other places in the world. There was also some research in terms of connected uh, smartwatches, which basically were providing a false sense of security because they could be easily hacked. And one of the key features of the watch was to show where your kids were, where that was very easily hacked to show that they were in a different place where they were actually at. So the, the children were actually less protected by the use of that watch, let's say. And we see that with many other connected devices. So we feel that there's a, a gap there in terms of protection and in terms of regulation. We need baseline security requirements to make sure that any connected product that is put on the market is safe. So um, I mentioned the cyber security already. So there are two more which I would qualify as, uh, I wanted to make this uh, talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, but uh, some, some things haven't been decided yet, so it's difficult to qualify them as good, bad, or ugly. But I could tell that one of them, which is the SATCAP, is getting really, really ugly the SATCAP directive, because uh, this was a, a very good initiative, again, from the Commission, very ambitious, but the way this is going, the, the impact that this uh, uh, directive is going to have in the end is going to be ex very, very limited, so it's not going to bring much in, at the end of the day. Same thing, there are issues with the copyright regulation, so the directive. So. Unfortunately, we've seen in these two initiatives in particular, familiar dynamics at play. Basically, the regulation or the proposal comes in with a lot of uh, ambition, and uh, there are certain interests that prevail in the discussion, and at the end of the day, what we end up with is a basically same situation we had before. It's like, we have a big problem in terms of the digital single market for audiovisual content. That is not existing, and if things keep going like they're going, it's going to be difficult that we get it. So that one is, uh, is really an ugly point, let's say. And uh, in terms of uh, what's coming up, um, I would also mention the artificial intelligence um, 
proposal or communication that is coming up uh, in the next few days. From our perspective, this is really the, the next uh, debate, and there are lots of questions in terms of liability, for example. What happens if something goes wrong uh, and it's, it's a, an artificial intelligence um, machine that has taken a decision that has caused harm? How are we going to solve those kind of issues and make sure that the consumer is protected uh, no matter what type of technology is powering the devices or the services that they're using? And I think I'll just leave it there for, so we have more time for discussion. Thank you very much, uh, David. I think uh, you gave a very good overview of uh, different aspects and dimensions of the digital single market. Uh, and I really enjoyed uh, the classification on things that work good, less good, and uh, open challenges to consider. Uh, so um, we have uh, seen, Maximilian, uh, different reactions. Uh, uh, that start from, let's say, the tech industry, tel telecom, uh, but also comments about the speed by the, the European Parliament and now David's uh, input on particular dossiers that could be better. Um, it will be great to have your response and comments on that. And uh, after your response, I would like also Christian, uh, if he wants, uh, to comment on the level playing field uh, comment uh, by Roland. Uh, Maximilian, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jorgos. Uh, wow, that's, uh, I, I kept scribbling lots of stuff uh, during the discussion and tried to nod and say no and whatever. So lots of exciting stuff from, from all uh, your, your interventions. Maybe I, I try to make a few points on each of them, and then if you allow me to, to give a little bit of an um, outlook, maybe what we think why or what was the initial idea of the DSM and did we achieve or not. Uh, uh, Christian, yes, uh, you, you said in the beginning, or you said at the very end, Neely Cruz was saying, uh, are we embracing it or are we fighting it? And this is in the end what David in, uh, alluded a little bit um, uh, in, in his uh, intervention also in the end. Yeah, big parts of Europe are fighting it. But I think the European institutions, at least here, tried to embrace it very, very forcefully. So the Digital Single Market Project was one that wanted to embrace forcefully and constructively create a digital single market for all Europeans, whether I'm an individual customer or a citizen going to an office or a small company or a big company, in particular the small companies and in particular the individuals uh, in the market uh, were, I think, in the focus. And you said, um, yeah, there is too much regulation. And uh, uh, do, we, do we help in this way our, uh, our future tech successes? And you said we go from uh, 1 to 28. And here I would really push back and say, no, it was exactly the contrary. We, we uh, found out in the end that we needed to regulate, but that the aim of the regulation was to regulate regulation away. Okay, this didn't work. I, I thought it could be an interesting phrase. No, we tried to regulate fragmentation away because there is lots of regulation that is emerging in particular also in national markets, which is natural because we have here a very fast uh, sort of developing environment, uh, and a region, a city, a country, a sector uh, sees the emergent uh, issues and starts regulating. It's a natural response. But we, at the European level, are then confronted with a situation where we have lots of regulation popping up. So our response was to say, let's take a pause. Let's see where we can create a single coherent framework for Europe that applies to all companies, in particular the small ones, to all people, to all persons, citizens, customers, all across Europe, for the simplification and the clarity and the certainty that came up a number of times uh, all across uh, the board. 
Uh, and Eva, who has left, um, uh, insisted a number of times on the importance that we need a foundation for allowing to scale up the small companies. This is what I can't do if I'm a small company and I'm faced with fragmentation across Europe. I cannot scale up because I run into walls and borders at every moment. For the, small, for the big ones, it's a nuisance as well. But the big ones have the resources. They have the legal departments. It costs them a lot, but they can do it. But if I'm a startup, if I'm an SME that is venturing into digitization, I cannot do it. That's why common consumer laws, for example, that's why clarity on the regulatory framework in general on data protection and so on is, is so very uh, important. If I also mentioned a point that was very important for us all along and that get, tends to get forgotten, and that is everything related to the public e-government. Hmm? Uh, we, of course, agree very much, and I think it is foundational that we have good connectivity across Europe. This is the basis for future uh, 5G, and we try to tackle it to the uh, code. It is essential, that came up a number of times, that we have data protection clarity, one law for the whole of Europe, 25th of May, entering into force. Uh, it is also clear that we need the free flow of data that Christian referred to. This is one foundation after the other, cybersecurity, nothing works if there is no trust in, in how things work. But I would like to add to that e-government, because there is the typical sort of reflex to say everywhere in Europe when we speak about the public sector equals red tape. You are good in saying that, and, and telecom and others are, are good at saying that. It's red tape, and that's how we perceive it. But digital has the uh, capacity and the possibility to turn government into green tape. Uh, and so that's why I'm glad that Eva, Eva mentioned it. Uh, uh, Roland uh, very forcefully drove the point about the certainty, the rela reliability of the regulatory framework, uh, and the single one that we need to give a certain time distance for uh, companies and uh, administrations and each of us, we as citizens and as consumers, to have trust in the longevity of the regulatory framework, because otherwise we cannot build 5G and we cannot uh, embrace this uh, regulatory, uh, this uh, sort of digital transformation of the public sector and education systems uh, uh, and so on. And uh, David, in the end, I think made the point very strongly where we got very criticized in the beginning uh, when we came out with the digital single market where business associations came to us and said, oh, it's all about consumers. It's only consumers. And where we tried from the beginning uh, to say, if we create an trusted environment for the consumers, one where I can feel safe and clear and I know my rights and I can do it cross-border, across Europe. It is good for business. That's what we drove from the very beginning. Uh, and, and still, the, in the very early days, at least the industry association said, ah, we don't need that. I think we need it. Uh, and the points have been made and I saw people nodding uh, a long time. So um, it, things can get ugly, I agree with you. This is the difficulty of the legislative uh, process. Uh, that's also why we have been hesitant. While I said in the beginning we needed to regulate in order to get the fragmentation away, we have also been very hesitant because we know about the length and the risks of the process. And this is, maybe this allow me to, to wrap up a little bit the introduction, uh, that's why we try to focus on very few areas only. And even here we see, and I agree to some extent with you on the intra-EU calls, I think it's a distraction. It is a not uh, impact assessed distraction that may take hostage of the of the whole thing, and the SATCAP uh, and the, the like you said the absence of a digital single market for audiovisual, I find it scandalous honestly 
But it's in particular scandalous of those people who speak for their industry and try to block things, what you said, push back in the very beginning, while an industry is standing at the brink. And we want to preserve creativity in Europe. We want to keep creation in Europe. Europe is strong because of its creative sectors as well. This is one of the huge competitive advantages that we have in Europe. And some representatives of this very sector that we want to push uh, actually seem not to want to see it and, and just stand willingly at the, at the shop. Okay, so a quick wrap up. I think what, what is the difference, I try to wrap up from my side, what our uh, sort of intentions were behind the Digital Single Market Project was to say, we had many, many years of digital agendas in Europe at EU level, at national level, at sectoral level. Super important, extremely important to put digital on the political agenda in the public debate. But the difficulty is that if you have 100, 120, 150 actions from transport to, to education to, to agriculture uh, and so on and so on, we lose the focus. So the idea here was to say, where are horizontal levers? Where are horizontal issues that if we address them and we put the cursor from block to embrace, from closed to open, from a common framework uh, to a, to a from an, uh, fragmented to a common framework, then all of them can succeed. Education, agriculture, transport, health, and so on and so on. And here we identified that came up, I hope, is the connectivity as a basic layer. Is the data protection and trust, but also the free flow of data, the access to data, the open uh, data that, for example, we come up this Wednesday, I hope, uh, uh, with, a, with a new uh, regulation. Common standards, open standards. No? Very important all the time for us. Cybersecurity, common rules. NIS is entering into force just now. I have great hope in our new IoT so, uh, security standardization process that is bottom-up, but still creating a common uh, framework and e-government in the end. If we manage these levers, these horizontal levers, and I have some hope that we get them implemented, at least as a first step uh, by the end of this mandate, it is the DSM that Europe can build then on the, on the next level. And Mr. Anze very often got, get asked on this ambition, is this big enough, is this good enough? And he says it's very easy for me to, to describe a beautiful, massive vision, um, but if I don't get it, because there are too many vested interests, because the legislative process is too long, he says I prefer to eat the salami piece by piece and keep eating. So I will not be hungry and die of starvation, but I keep eating, and then the next term we can try to get another piece of the salami. Yeah? Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Maximilian. Um, you mentioned in uh, uh, various points of your talk uh, privacy and GDPR. Uh, Roland uh, made the comment that on the top of GDPR we, there are some uh, specific rules, sectoral specific uh, rules. Any response to this? Yeah, here. about the necessity to have this? Um, on this point, I'm slightly puzzled, honestly, uh, Roland, because I, I think the, the principles that we came forward with the e-privacy regulation, by the way, to replace the current e-privacy directive that led to various degrees of implementation all across Europe, uh, for us uh, remain very valid. So the first principle was to say we have a common regulation. Huh? The same like we did in other areas. We say we have a, a joint, a common framework uh, in which it is easier to move for European companies and citizens than if you have a fragmented environment. Then the question of saying that uh, the privacy of communications, as it was valid to me as a customer, as a citizen, 
100 years ago when I didn't want anybody to open my letters and then later to uh, listen into my telephone calls applies now also to an exchange of emails or whatever other uh, communication. So I don't see really a questioning in all of that. The question of an alignment of the industries where telecoms and platforms move jointly, parallel, into new developments. This is something that we thought is something that is ripe to be done. Cookie fatigue, etc., etc. These are all issues that are valid to address. Now, I don't hear anything that would put this into question. What we can discuss, these are the principles uh, that are important for us, but what we can discuss is how we do it. Uh, if we get aggressed by German publishers saying, oh, it will be the end of the free press if we have e-privacy regulation. I find it slightly overblown, uh, but we can talk with them. But they tell us, essentially, please, you write a law or you don't do a law so that my customers don't know what I give them and sell them. I mean, sorry, this doesn't stand up in what David said in the times of uh, discussions about privacy and, uh, and Facebook and so on and so on. So, yes, let's discuss how exactly we can do it on whitelists and so on. Uh, we, we can all discuss this. But the principles for me are valid. May, may, may I just read? Because the answer was, was 10 times longer than the, what, I, what I introduced to the subject. Okay, sorry. Uh, so, uh, no, no, just not to be misunderstood is yes, indeed. Uh, uh, we, we, we want an e-privacy regulation because we have an e-privacy directive, which is worse than what we will see in the future. Uh, the problem we have is not about protecting privacy of communication, which is the standard, basically, it's a fundamental right, which should be strictly preserved. Uh, but the privacy deals with two things. It's privacy of communication and data protection. And we have some problems with the data protection part of it. We believe the data protection part is now covered more or less by the general data protection rules where we do not see that we need a sector-specific approach to this privacy aspect of data privacy, which amounts to storage, et cetera, of data. So not, not, we're not talking about the secrecy of communications. That's, that's, that's fine. There's no problem at all. Uh, what we see, basically, is why we should treat more or less the same things different depending on where you get the information from. And to give you one example, was a, uh, some example we're using is basically location data, where, where uh, typically through an app, basically, you, you can locate people very precisely by, by the built-in GPS functionality of, of smartphones, which is much more precise than we could ever do through a network, a telecommunications network. You have maybe an idea in which cell side a consumer is. The cell side can be a diameter of 50 kilometers. When you are in, in rural landscapes, basically, it could be in the size of two kilometers. When you are in dense areas, could be in the future even smaller areas when, you, when we build up 5G. But it's, 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 it'll never be as precise as a two, three, four, five meters you have with GPS. Nevertheless, the protection of these GPS data from a privacy perspective is lower under the GDPR than the standards you try to impose now on e-privacy for information on location we get through communications networks. And that's what we do not understand, what is the rationale behind it. If we believe that the GDPR is good in terms of protecting the, the, the privacy of people, it should be good enough also for the information you gather from a network. So that, that, that's, that's where we have a problem here, why we do have different standards for more or less the same thing. Even the, the, even the, more, the more dangerous information is less protected than the more vague information we get from our networks. 
agree, uh, just on e-privacy briefly, uh, if a justification for this new review was to ensure confidentiality of new services like emails, et cetera. Well, technology, we have provided a solution for that, which is encryption. So actually, technology has provided a solution, which means that you don't have to, to worry so much that uh, and, and, and grant that in EU legislation. I think you said earlier that you know, we are against regulation. We're not against regulation. We just want to have sound, evidence-based legislation that is future-proof. And I think we, we sort of agree on that. It's not if we have one or 100 proposals. Maybe 100 proposals is, is fine, but it just has to be sort of uh, uh, the right and uh, smart regulation. And of course, as big companies, we can deal with this red tape. You know, it'll be more expensive, and at the end of the day, those compliance costs will probably go to the consumer in Europe, which is probably not what we want at the end of the day, but big companies can, can probably deal with that. The problem is that all the startups in Europe who will face this wall, this is a wall, this is a barrier to entry to the European market. And I have a self-interest here. I want to see many European startups to go from being that to scale up to be big enough and join our association so they can so pay my salary. So I have a pure interest here in, in, in seeing these uh, companies being able to enter the European market uh, in technology. And I'm, I just fear that some of these uh, proposals would sort of uh, create new barriers to entry and maybe uh, amplify the, the competition discussions we're having uh, in Europe. And then I think your question was about sort of the uh, this ecosystem that both the telecoms industry and the online services um, uh, find ourselves in. Um, and I agree totally with Dr. Telecom. If you don't have the infrastructure, then nothing else really matters. If you don't have the connectivity, then forget about connected car, IoT, everything. And of course, from our side, we're happy that our online services also drives demand for connectivity. Nobody wants connectivity if there's nothing to connect with, right? But if you have all these fantastic services that consumers love, well, then that drives demand for, for connectivity. And finally, level playing field. It's a bit sort of a, one of those funny lobby words, a bit like fairness. Like fairness is so emotional. Probably, if you look, if it's about fairness, maybe there's a lack of evidence. It's sort of my rule of thumb here. Level playing field, it's kind of like, sometimes it can be all industries that are sort of looking to protect themselves against sort of digital disruptors. I'm sure that's not what, what, uh, what Dart Silicon had in mind here. But of course, there is a great difference uh, from a old school, uh, technology like text, which is, hasn't really changed over the decades, uh, telecom service, and then online internet services like WeChat that has more than 20 uh, different uh, applications in it where you can do many, many different things and where the communications part maybe is just a, a small part of that, small feature. So that's why maybe as regulators we just have to make sure, uh, regulators have to just make sure that it, you know, it's the appropriate legislation for different types of services. Uh, David, you wanted also to make some. Yes, thanks. The, this is being um, streamed online, right? And it's being recorded. So we have on record that the Deutsche Telekom wants the e-privacy regulation, right? Because it's the first time I hear a telecom company saying it like that. We want the e-privacy regulation. And I'm happy to hear that, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, on that one, well, we fully support this proposal and we think that it's necessary. There's no doubt about that because of the same reasons you have an e-privacy directive that went along with the 95 Data Protection Directive. We still need the e-privacy regulation to go along and complement the GDPR. We have two different fundamental rights, privacy, data protections. Uh, it's very clear in the charter. And there are th things that are not covered 
in the GDPR, which would be covered in the privacy regulation. And true, there might be some overlaps, but the overlaps are, make, let's say, they make sense from our perspective. In the e-privacy regulation, you're going to protect terminal equipment as well. Don't forget that part. You're going to pro protect consumers against unsolicited commercial communications, spam or direct marketing, whatever you want to call it. There are certain things which shouldn't happen without user consent. And under the GDPR, there's a risk that they could happen without user consent if we don't have the e-privacy regulation. How many people have an iPhone here? Have you looked at that part called significant locations and their privacy? I, I would encourage you to go and look at that. It's in settings, privacy. You find it at the bottom, significant locations. You're going to see there, if you haven't touched it, a list of all the places you've been to in the past, I don't know, maybe even a year or something like that. Would you like somebody to access and use that kind of information without asking for your consent? Raise your hand here. On what we agree is that it doesn't matter who uses that data. I agree it should be the same location data for telecoms, location data for information society services. Both the principle should be that they generally have to ask for consent. That On that part, we agree. But on the, on the fact that we don't need the, any privacy regulation or that the e-privacy regulation is going to kill democracy, because I've heard it even further than just the free press. It's the end of democracy. I've heard it like that. I would actually say that the practices that we see online and online advertising, behavioral advertising, tracking, profiling, as we have seen with the Cambridge Analytica staff, this is what's hurting democracy actually at the end of the day. Not only people's privacy, it's hurting society as a whole. So we need to think hard about that, how to change that. And the e-privacy regulation is there to do that as well, to help move into a more privacy-friendly business environment. Because, and I'm coming to, to the point about um, regulation barriers to entry, we see this type of regulation as something that will encourage innovation that is in line with the fundamental values and rights that we have in Europe. That's where we see the added value of these regulations. Um, I think that uh, I also want to mention about, uh, talk something quickly about the level playing field. We, this is a word uh, that uh, we hear all the time. And uh, for us, what the, the risk is that where you put that level playing field, at which level? Because for some people, establishing a level playing field means deregulating. So if I'm here and these guys are here, we are going both down here. From our perspective, establishing a level playing field means there's this level of protection, for example, for telecom services in terms of communications, protecting the confidentiality. And people like WhatsApp and Skype and other guys are down here. For us, establishing a level playing field means that everybody goes up here and you provide the same level of protection for everyone. So I think that we have a different understanding of what that means, but uh, that's a good thing. I mean, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> Any further comments? Yeah, please, and then we open the floor for questions. And just, just, I think what's very good in these kind of discussions, you, you drill down more and more to the core of the question here. And certainly singling out that, and for the record, that I was in favor of the new regulation. Yes, that's that's good. But I, I, from from a, from a, from a legal logic, there could be no other conclusion than this, because the current directive is much more intrusive than we would see in the future. I don't know whether you consider this, but the point is the point is, and and, and we and, and I don't I don't see us as an enemy basically, because uh, you the people you defend are our customers. <laughs> 
So I don't see that there's a, that there must be a, a, a difference between us. The, the problem what I often see is that that these rights are seen as absolute rights. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a trained lawyer, I've done a lot of constitutional law, and in constitutional law, when you look at basic rights, you have to balance rights. There's nothing absolute. If you set something absolute, you're stuck. And the same for privacy. On the one side, we want to exploit data for the good of our societies and the well-being of our people. If you want to exploit data, you have to balance it out with an absolute privacy right here. And it's not always good for the consumer that he might need to consent to everything. What I understand is, and, and I'm, 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 I'm forcefully in favor, personally, for, for the protection of privacy as, as a person and a citizen, but still, at the same time, we want to use a lot of data for the well-being of our society, for reducing emissions, for steering traffic, etc. And uh, to give you one example, we, we, we've seen the introducing of, of e the emergency call system in Europe, basically. And this was, this was a bit of a burden for our industry because then we had to, to adapt our networks to make this happen. We, we've seen the benefit of e-call having every, every new car equipped with a connectivity with a possibility to better steer traffic in the future, to reduce the costs for streets, to reduce the emissions, etc., to prevent traffic jams as much as possible. But what happened then? Data protection officers stood up and said, ah, this allows you to track the people where they drive. Yes, indeed, this would have been possible. So what they said basically in the legislation is due to this intervention, they made it a dormant SIM, meaning it only opens up the connection once you have a crash. So this is a lost opportunity for Europe again to have the possibility because if you want to do traffic steering, it's important that you have every vehicle basically on the record to see where they are driving and then steer traffic in the right way. If then half the people say, if, if, if basically, if, if you have to actively activate it basically, and you cannot use it for this purpose, this is a loss for society. Yes, indeed, you have to do privacy by design. There are other means than explicit consent basically to make sure that the individual person is protected. And one thing basically the general data protection did basically that you could use, make use of this data by pseudonymization, meaning that it's not, it's not important whether it's Mr. Miller, Mr. Smith or whatever. It's important that a certain person moves in a regular way from here to there. And this gives you statistical information, for instance, for public transports to allow you to optimize public transport. And all these things are made much more difficult, simply because you say, this is an absolute right, and you can do anything about this, and then you, you destroy all other opportunities around this. And this is, from my point of view, not in the real interest of the people you're defending as well. Thank you very much. David, uh, if you don't mind, let's collect questions, and you respond collectively to everything. So questions. Um, we, we entered to the discussion on privacy, but uh, of course the session is DSM in general, so are there any questions uh, that you, okay, I see one hand there. Okay. Hello, my name is Brett Hack from BVVA. I've got a question concerning the salami from uh, Max. Um, yeah, the topics we've been discussing for now were basically pending issues uh, but already announced or more or less known. Uh, so my question would be to Max, but also to the others, uh, what would be 
the bigger slices of upcoming salami that should uh, be taken care of by the next commission. Thank you. Any further question? Okay, Maximilian. Well, I came here and I thought you'd tell me what the next commission should do. Huh? Uh, I think the first, the, the evident thing is to get, uh, um, to create an environment where you can eat the slices of salami uh, in quietly and carefully and uh, safely. Because what we see is actually now that this um, sort of all the various initiatives are falling into place, one after the other. Huh? I mean, we have the entry divorce of the GDPR, of the NIST directive. We will have EIDAS, this is the trust service and e-identity and so on. In the autumn, we have geo-blocking in the winter. Piece after piece, it is uh, sort of entering into reality for, for all of us. Uh, and the question is, how do we police this afterwards? How fast do we ensure that member states and private actors and so on uh, will, will deliver on them? And on this basis, we will see what is missing, like we have seen, for example, with the free flow of data. Uh, so this was something that, uh, as such, emerged as an important issue during the, uh, the initial phase of the DSM, because we saw that suddenly there was a tendency from member states to put in place uh, localization requirements for cloud services and so on and so on. We said, uh, and here I totally agree with the other speakers, this can't be. If we have a free space, a common European digital single market, then this is not uh, possible. So in earlier also Bruegel meetings, uh, we, we asked what is missing? Because I said in the beginning there was a lot of criticism of the uh, uh, of industry in particular. You you don't do enough for, for industry, and we countered back and said the the uh, certification for IoT, for example, the whole telecom stuff, the uh, all of this is essential uh, for for industry in Europe. There are areas that are equally essential, but where the EU has no genuine capacity to act massively and centrally, which is, for example, access to talent for companies and education that Eva has referred to. Absolutely burning issue for uh, Europe and Europeans and European companies and research and so on. But this is nothing where we can easily go and write the regulation and then it will happen. This is something where industry and the public side, the member states, the regions, the cities uh, are called uh, for, for example. So these are implementing aspects of the current uh, legislative cycle that I would see is the most burning make it a reality de facto every day, all the time, all across Europe for the next month. But then I'm listening. Thank you. Uh, let's conclude with the final remarks by the speakers. David, ask the floor, and then we'll go to Roland and Christian, and we'll close. Very quickly. First, I, I wanted to apologize if I've uh, put you on the spot uh, unduly or something like that, but uh, I... What I meant is like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the initial position of your sector was that we had to repeal this, uh, the e-privacy directive and that the e-privacy regulation didn't make any sense. That's why I was happy to hear that uh, you have changed or that your position has evolved. And in fact, I believe that uh, your sector should be happy because indeed the e-privacy e regulation gives you possibilities to do things that you would not be able to do under the current directive, if I understood correctly. So from that point of view. And all these examples that you were mentioning, we have no problem with that kind of stuff. And I don't think that you can accuse uh, us or organization like ours of being some uh, privacy absolutist uh, or privacy talibans or whatever you want to call them. Uh, 
but uh, because for us, it's about the principles as well. And we should start with the principle that there are certain things that should not happen without people's consent. Then we have to look at the exceptions for enabling uses of data which are not uh, privacy, um, don't, do not have a high privacy risk and are gonna bring value for society. All those things are, are okay. We just need to look at how we frame them. What we don't want to see is like general broad exceptions like a legitimate interest legal base for processing. Um, communications data that we don't want to see, but we can look at other options that we don't close. We're not uh, uh, opposed against that. So basically, I, I think that uh, on that point, um, things are more or less clear in terms of where you stand and where we stand. So that's okay. On the question about the salami, I, I, I think that um, artificial intelligence certainly is uh, the biggest piece of salami from a technology perspective. And uh, the, the piece that we also have to eat, maybe it's chorizo, it's not salami, but it's the digital single market for content, which is, I mean, spicy and strong. So I guess uh, that's a good analogy. Thanks. Can you give it, uh, Roland, final remarks, or do you have anything to add? Well, I, I'm confident that after we have exchanged our views that we find a good solution uh, for the privacy. Just to clarify that the initial request for uh, taking away completely privacy was meant not to taking away all the rules included. The idea was that the, the secrecy of communications could have well moved to the code, basically. Uh, whereas we see the, the, the privacy rules uh, being already covered by the privacy directive. Well, that was the initial uh, initial uh, wish of our industry. Uh, uh, even why, why we cannot get this, basically, uh, we always said less, a revision is necessary anyway. So we're not opposing this revision of the privacy. We are still stuck in, in some details here. That, that, that's uh, to, explain, to explain the problem we have. On the, on the uh, uh, investment certainty for networks, uh, I, I would like to, to re-emphasize the need to uh, really, uh, uh, that the co-legislators are now really uh, moving uh, to provide these legal certainty for investments. Uh, I just want to, uh, uh, to make you aware that uh, more than 30 CEOs of European telecom operators uh, just sent a new letter around, uh, published it basically, raising their concerns about the package and whether it will really provide the legal, the legal certainty for this huge investment challenge we have ahead of us. And we very much hope that uh, now uh, rationality comes back to the table uh, and uh, we, we come to conclusions uh, uh, which help the industry to make these investments. Thank you. And Christian, we close with your final. Ah, okay, Maximilian. Okay, afterwards. Oh, I wish I could go last. And uh, you cannot throw any bombs at the, at the end of fireworks into the discussion like, here. Like the bureaucrats usually do. Huh? <laughs> Very good. No, I just want to reiterate that you know we support, of course, the objectives of the digital single market, uh, and we do recognize uh, there are several successes, notably the free flow data in the EU, uh, but also that there are some of the proposals which have become sort of more, perhaps more strong on the political side. This is in the news, so we should be doing something, and maybe lacking a little bit in the evidence. Uh, 
Um, I think maybe the piece of the salami that has been focused a lot on has been on a few consumer-facing companies rather than sort of looking at the big uh, picture. So we do hope that the next commission will sort of take a zoom out a little bit and sort of look, looking at the globe and look at Europe, where how is Europe doing compared to, to other leading regions and how can uh, the commission sort of steer uh, rather than sort of stop this uh, digital transformation, um, steer even more uh, uh, this uh, digital uh, transformation in Europe, and and when uh, needed, when they need for having uh, legislation, do so when there is uh, clear evidence of a problem, and making sure that it's uh, future proof. Thank you. Um, thanks for uh, this was uh, actually you sensed that I wanted to throw a bomb uh, at you in particular, uh, because it was true that there was one thing that struck me a little bit, uh, uh, and that this was this aspect of saying we are loading. Europe's small companies with unnecessary uh, red tape, and we don't do this embracing uh, that we that we should do. Well, honestly, I'm very deeply convinced that this is exactly what we are trying to do, not artificially blocking uh, anything because it's the flavor of the day, and we are trying to fight back the flavor of the day very, very often. If you think about all the areas of platform regulation, where it is so easy to say, ah, oh, just change the e-commerce directive. And we have been standing up, and Mr. Ansip has been standing up all the time, saying from the beginning, say, let's not lightly touch these things. Let's not even lightly discuss it, because it could create an impression as if by turning just a little uh, lever, we, we, uh, we can change profoundly. No, we think we should, wherever there is an issue, just as you said, wherever there's an issue, let's look into it. And what we've done so far is saying, where there is fragmentation, let's do it away. If there is an issue, like we had on some areas on illegal content, um, let's work together. Let's not lightly, lightly go into regulation, because regulation will not help us there. Huh? It will take us five years, and what do we do during five years? Huh? So uh, this is sort of the flavor uh, of the approach. And if there was somebody in the focus of the action sort of problem, what do you want to solve? It is, and this I repeat again, it's the small company. It's the small local company. It's the startup that, and you refer to Spotify, that five or ten years ago had to leave Europe in order to grow, and that we want to stay and grow. And uh, you may say, uh, typically, we want to believe in what we say, but uh, if I take the figures from TechEU, uh, that is tracking startup investment, for example, in you, or the, um, uh, an interesting report, the state of tech uh, in, in Europe, that comes out every year, we see the pockets of information getting, uh, of innovation all across Europe getting bigger and bigger. And it is not only Berlin and Amsterdam and Stockholm and London or something and Paris, but it is really across the area. It is in Romania, it is in Bulgaria, it is in Italy, it is everywhere in Europe that this is starting uh, to happen. So, and to give this development a push in the back, uh, and let it run instead of being it caught into the filet of the local regulation. This is the aim of the DSM. Thank you very much. So we talk about salami, we talk about chorizo. It's uh, time to have a break, uh, lunch break. Uh, and yeah, let's go to. Okay, yeah, I was uh, about to tell, uh, say that. So you suggest to start with 10 minutes, uh, so 12.55. Uh, yes. So start 12.55 and we have two sessions, one on cybersecurity, 12.55, and then uh, managing the digital transformation.
Enjoy the break. <laughs>